0: Hebrews chapter five. If you got your Bibles there, and I'm going to read a passage uh, of scripture before that. We're continuing our study in the uh, book of Hebrews, and now we're con- beginning to consider some of uh, what the Bible has to say about Jesus as our High Priest. But I want to read a passage here from the book of Matthew before turning to Hebrews chapter five. This is a this is the prayer that Jesus prayed just prior to his crucifixion. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, will you sit here while I go over there and pray? And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Grieved and agitated. And then he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Something that they found themselves unable to do. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground, threw himself on the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Let thy will be done. Then turning to the book of Hebrews, we'll come back to that prayer in a little bit here the book of Hebrews, the author says this, starting with verse 1 of chapter 5. Every high priest, chosen from among mortals, is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is what a high priest does. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is subject to weakness. And because of this, he must offer sacrifices for his own sin, as well as those of the people. And one does not presume to take this honor for themselves, but takes it only when called by God, just like Aaron was. Aaron was sort of yanked into this. What the author is doing there is this. He's, he's laying out what the qualifications of a high priest are in order to demonstrate to these fellow Jews that Jesus is a proper high priest. To be a high priest, he so far said, you need to be a mortal. You need to be a human being. You cannot represent other human beings unless you yourself are a human being. Because You must empathize and totally sympathize with the people that you're representing. But also to be a high priest, you have to be more than that. You have to be called by God. You can't run for this office. You can't presume this office. It has to be given to you by God. And Now the author is going to say Jesus meets those qualifications. Verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was anointed by the one, his Father, who said to him, You are my son, today have I begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus here fills the qualification of one who is called by God, but he also fills the qualification of being a mortal who can sympathize with other mortals. Verse 7, In the days of his flesh, in the days of his humanity, the author is saying, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, With loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. That's strange. He was heard. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect or having been made complete, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So this Jesus was one who was called. He was also one who was mortal. He empathizes with those who are weak because he, being made flesh, partook of that weakness. I want to pray for this message, but I'd like to ask a couple of people. I'd like to see if I can get seven, maybe more. But don't do this unless you really are going to commit to it. Uh, to provide sort of a prayer covering here as the word goes forth. Because the word going without prayer is utterly useless. And I just feel the need to have some intercessors here. We're going to be talking about intercessory prayer. And what I feel is the need to have some intercessory prayer as we're, as we're talking about this. So could I have seven people who will commit to this? While I'm preaching, you can go ahead and listen. But all the while, will be doing intercession for me. Saying, Lord, anoint the word. Anoint the word. Anoint the word. Anoint the word. Could I have seven people or more? Okay, got a couple there. Just, good, that's good. Just be interceding for me, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I would pray thou that your word would come alive, that your word would take on an energy that is not of my own doing. Lord, I, I just pray God for your anointing, because it is your anointing according to your word which breaks the yoke. And there's yoke here, Lord, and it needs to be broken. Lord, I just pray this morning that your army would be set on fire here to, be due, to do army stuff and that your your royal priesthood here, Lord God, would be set on fire to do royal priesthood stuff. But this isn't a gimmick that I'm supposed to talk anyone into, Lord. You've got to use whatever words I come out with, Lord, and, and you've got to invest it with your divine energy and make it come alive in our ears and make it come alive in our heart and bear kingdom fruit. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you'd motivate and bless the intercessors who are praying even as the word's going forth. To keep on unlocking the vault of heaven that it would flow down, fall like fire, soak like rain, Lord. Hallelujah. Fall like fire, soak like rain, Lord. Hallelujah. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. And the army of God said? Amen. Amen. All right. Three things I want to talk about here this morning. First thing is this. I want just to draw our attention to consider a little bit the real humanity of Jesus Christ. The real humanity of Jesus Christ. There's two errors you can make in thinking about the person of Jesus Christ. The first error is a very common one. It's usually made by non-believers or by people who are in sectarian groups or by people who are involved in other religions. And this, you don't sufficiently emphasize or recognize, if you recognize at all, that Jesus Christ is mighty God. You think that he's a great man, perhaps, a great prophet, perhaps, an anointed one, perhaps. Or maybe you go so far as to say that he is a mighty angel, Michael the archangel, perhaps, as the Jehovah Witnesses say. But you don't recognize that he's the creator of the world, that he is, in fact, Lord God. And that is a mistake, because the Bible portrays him as being, in fact, the Lord God. He's called the creator of the world. In, in, in Colossians chapter 1, he's called God over all. Romans 9.5, he's called our great God and Savior. Titus 2.13, he's worshipped, he's adored, he's prayed to. He, he, he's given all the attributes and all the functions that's given to God, and that's because he is God. While he's fully human, he's fully God, and that needs to be emphasized. There's another error that can be made with regard to the person of Jesus Christ, and this is the one that evangelicals are more inclined towards. Those who believe in the Bible, you grab hold of his deity, but sometimes we minimize his humanity, his real humanity. It's what I call sometimes a God-in-a-bod theology. Um, it's a Jesus in a human suit, a God in a human suit. And the idea that some evangelicals have is that That Jesus was sort of like, he's the creator walking around and he looks human and maybe he acts human and he eats like a human being and and, uh, does other bodily functions like a human being. I suppose, though, if you push that very far, they might get a little offended. Um, I got a student one time that got offended because somehow it came out that Jesus had to go to the bathroom like everybody else and that was just beneath God. Well, it's not beneath God because God became a human being and if you're a human being and don't go to the bathroom, you're in serious trouble. You just don't want to... I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> I was gonna say constipated savior, but I, I thought I'd better back off of that one. Okay, but see, he was a real human being, and the idea that they have sometimes is that it's God in a bod, and he looks human, whatever. But he's really human, and so he doesn't—he doesn't really empathize with us. He's not where we're at. He's—he's he's always above us, you see. And if you believe that, then it's really hard to believe that Jesus Christ was really. A brother, the firstborn among many brethren, and that he really understands what we're going through, that he can really empathize with us. There's a lot of Christians who are offended by the idea that Jesus was tempted. But the Bible says a number of times that Jesus was tempted. Now, he didn't sin. To be tempted is not to sin. To give in to temptation is sin. Jesus was really tempted. That's a genuine thing, that's a human thing. To be a human, even a perfect human, in a fallen world is to be subject to temptation. Jesus was there. The Bible portrays Jesus while emphasizing that he's divine. It also emphasizes that he's really, really human. Not play human, not pretending human, not wearing a human costume. He really is human. So the Bible says here, for example, that he learned obedience. Think about that. He learned obedience, how? By the things that he suffered. Jesus had to learn obedience. That's a human thing. It portrays him in the garden as sweating drops of blood, of being in grief, of having fear. That's a human thing. Jesus really went through that. The Bible portrays him as submitting to the Father, as praying to the Father, as being needy. The Bible portrays him in Luke chapter 2 as growing in wisdom and stature. Growing in wisdom and stature. He grew. He had to learn. He had to study. Because that's what human beings do. He submitted to the Father because that's what human beings do. He learned obedience because that's what human beings do. And he was a full human being. Now you ask the question, how could he be a full human being, a real human being, if he was also God? Now putting that together is no easy project. and People do it in different ways, but let me just throw this out here is what I think is going on. The Bible says that the Word was made flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word was made flesh. Really made flesh. The Word became flesh. And by flesh, it doesn't just mean skin. It means humanity. Jesus became human. Now, how did he do that? Philippians chapter 2, I believe, tells us how he did that. Paul says here, starting in verse 6, Jesus, who was in the very form of God, the very nature of God, morphe Theu is the Greek, He's in by very nature God, He didn't cling to his equality with God. He didn't cling to his divine nature. He didn't cling to his divine prerogatives. But the Bible says he emptied himself. He emptied himself. The word there is kenosis, and it means to deplete or to set aside. He depleted himself of his divine prerogatives and took on the form of a servant. By laying aside temporarily his divine prerogatives, he didn't stop being divine, but he stopped exercising divine attributes. He became a full human being. So human beings, for example, have a finite knowledge. Jesus lays aside temporarily his omniscience to take on finite knowledge. That's why when they said, when's the second coming, Jesus says, I don't know. No man knows that, and he is a man. Mark chapter 13, verse 32. I think I remember that verse. I can't believe I remember that verse. Let look it up. You see 31 or 32, I hope. Because um, now I'm on record. But uh, he didn't know that. He says, that only the Father knows that. He sets aside that divine prerogative. He sets aside his omnipresence because humans are finite. The omnipresence means God is everywhere, but as human beings aren't. So he temporarily restrains that to become a human being. When Jesus becomes into the human world, he goes native. He goes native. And he becomes a genuine human being. He doesn't give up his divine character. The divine love is still there. He's still very God. And yet, he takes on the mind, the powers, the limitations of a human being because that's what it is to be a human being. Jesus, that's why he says, that's why he says in a number of places, he says, what I do, I don't do in my own power. Because he divested himself of that power. What he does, he does as a human being relying on the Father. So he says, the Father in me, he does the works. I can do nothing. Now God, as God, exercising divine prerogatives would never say that. But Jesus, as a man, a real human being, says that. And that's why he illustrates for us what it is to be a perfect human being. What it is to be perfectly reliant on God the Father. He says, I depend on the Father for all that I do. Jesus was a real human being. And that's why he can be our high priest. Because he empathizes. He understands. He's been there. He's, he's, he's in there. He's limited. He's, he he's, he's struggles with the same weaknesses that, that pertain to our human nature. He didn't have to do it, but he chose to do it in order to enter into our mortal frame to be our high priest. You never... See the humanity of Jesus more clearly than the Garden of Gethsemane. And this leads me to my second point. Jesus here prays this prayer. He's agitated. He's grieving. There's fear there. He's being a real human being facing a terrifying situation. So the book book of Hebrews says that he cries out to the Father with loud cries and tears and prayers and supplications. I don't believe that Jesus was crying out and was struggling with this because he was facing human death. Though the human death that he was facing by crucifixion was one of the most excruciating forms of torture known to humankind, and any real human being would fear that. I'm sure he had a normal human reaction to that, but that's not why he was crying out to God to save him and crying out and sweating drops of blood. What he was facing on top of all that was this. Being the one sinless human being that's ever been around, he knows the gravity of sin. And he knows what is going to be happening when he's crucified. It's not just the physical aspect of the crucifixion that he's, fl- that he's flinching from right now. It's the awareness that, it's the reason why he's being crucified. The Bible says all the sin of the world is going to be put upon him. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of him, praise God. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus is looking at that. The sin of the world. The pain of the sin of the world. The horror of the sin of the world. The punishment of the sin of the world. The ugliness of the sin of the world. He on the cross is going to absorb. And he knows in a way that none of us could possibly imagine. Because he, unlike us, was not familiar with sin. He knows the terror that that's going to be. To the point where he himself is going to experience hellish God abandonment on the cross. This is why he cries out, oh My God, my God, why, are you, why have you forsaken me? And facing that prospect, the Holy Son of God is crying out, Father, if it is possible to carry out this plan and spare me, do it. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. And then the author says this in Hebrews chapter 5. It says, And he was heard because of his reverent submission. He was heard in his prayers. He was heard in his cries because of his reverent submission. Here's what I'm struggling with. I struggled with it this week. How was it that God answered Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? Because it seems to me that he didn't answer the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. As I'm looking at it, it seems to me that Jesus prayed... Father, let this cup pass from me, and the cup doesn't pass from him. Minutes later, he gets arrested, he gets beaten, he goes through a mock trial, and he gets crucified. How is that an answer to prayer, Father, let this cup pass from me? It's not. It's not. So what is the author of Hebrews getting at here? How did God answer his prayer? Well, if you look at the Gethsemane prayer, that wasn't the only thing that Jesus prayed. He didn't just pray, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He also prayed, nevertheless, not my will be done, but let your will be done. I've always heard that prayer kind of like this. Whenever I pray like that, it's sort of like this: "Oh God, here's what I want. Lord, here's my needs. Lord, here's what you got to do. This is my prayer. But if you're not going to answer my prayer, then do your own thing." Uh, it's kind of and so that the do your own thing is sort of a concession. It's a passive sort of thing. My real prayer is, Lord, I want this done. And then as a sort of obedience, obligation, I say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, you know. But see, if you have that reading of the, of, of, of the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, you can't understand what the author's getting at in Hebrews chapter 5. It says here that, that the Father answered his prayer. The Father answered his prayer. The prayer that the Father had answered was not, Lord, take this cup from me. The prayer that the Father had answered was, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. What we need to see here is this. When Jesus prayed, nevertheless, not my will be done. He was praying that as aggressively and praying it as as passionately and praying it with as, as much conviction as when he prayed, maybe even more conviction than when he prayed, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What he's saying here is this. He lays out his heart. Father, I'm a human being. Father, I'm facing death. Father, I'm facing hellish punishment. I'm just now seeing the full gravity of what I got myself into. If there's any way to to get me out of this, Lord, do it. Nevertheless, what's really important here is not what I want. What's really important here, Lord, and he knows what prayer is. He's unleashing the power and the will of God here. Lord, what's really important is that your will and your plan and your wisdom get done. And if your plan and your will and your wisdom means I get crucified, then so be it. I pray that prayer, and the Father says, I answer that prayer. And so Jesus is taken to be crucified. It's sort of like this. Here's an analogy. Picture a war where you got a, a general sending out soldiers into battle, and they engage the enemy, and one of those soldiers is his son. Let's just say, for the sake of analogy, and as the war is going on, as the battle is going on, the, the strategy turns out to be this, that you're going to lose all your troops, the general sees, you're going to lose all your troops to retreat them. But to retreat them, you have to have someone covering for them. And the person that happens to be leading point, the one person who's in a position to cover for them as they retreat, is the, the general's son. And the plan here is to retreat the army and then barrage them with, 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 with aerial warfare and, and just bomb them. But to do that, the son has to stay stationed, where, whereas the others draw back. And so the plan goes, the others draw back, and the son is out there covering for them. In the meantime, the enemy closes in, and he gets surrounded. And he walkie-talkies his general dad and says, Dad, look at if there's any way, if there's any way that you can win this battle and spare me, I, of course, would like you to do that. But if that's not possible, what's really important here is winning this battle. We've got to win this battle. And if it means bombing the enemy while I am here, I give you permission to do that. Let the bombs fly. If I need to be spent for the battle to be won, then spend me. Because what's really important here is not my life individually considered. What's really important here is not my will. What's really important is winning this battle. It's you carrying out your will to win this whole battle. So send the fire if that's what's going to do it. So Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, let your will be done. And it's not a passive sort of conceding thing. That's a part of his real prayer. Father, let it be done. We need to understand this, that when Jesus entered into this world, he entered into a war zone. Because the world is a veritable war zone. That's why it looks like a war zone. And the purpose for his coming into the world was the enemy to enter enemy-occupied ter- territory. And the strategy was this, the Son of God was going to lay aside his divine prerogatives and become a real human being. And in becoming a real human being, he was going to become vulnerable. Becoming vulnerable, you understand, you know that your enemy being evil and not understanding love is going to try to take, take advantage of this. And so the plan is this, Satan with his cohorts are going to crucify, they're going to, mot- they're going to motivate people to crucify the Son of God, First, first Corinthians 2 eight tells us that. Jesus will get crucified. Jesus will be almost as it were, the early church referred to him as this, as bait and as a result of that the prisoners of war that have been held in bondage all these years are going to be set free that's you and that's me and as a result of this the enemy is going to be defeated and as a result of this sin is going to be paid for and as a result of this this is just the wisdom of God the manifold wisdom of God swatting 17 flies with one swat the devil is going to be defeated the prisoners are going to be set free the demons are going to be disempowered Uh, sinners are going to be justified God's plan will be run throughout the world but the price tag is very very high the price tag is Jesus Christ being crucified. And so as a real human being in the garden, he flinches, he say, he sees what it's going to entail, and he prays an honest prayer, because God always loves honest prayers. Lord, if it's possible, spare me. Nevertheless, what's got to happen is your will be, that your will get done. We need to understand that when the army shows up three minutes later and they arrest Jesus, that was the answer to his prayer, Thy will be done. And when Jesus was being mocked, that was an answer to his prayer, Father, thy will be done. And if it means me being mocked, then let it be. But what's important is that your will gets done. And when Jesus had the crown of thorns put on his head, and when Jesus had his side pierced, and when Jesus had his hands and his feet pierced, and when Jesus was crucified and bore the sin of the world, and when Jesus was crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is an answer to the prayer that Jesus himself prayed in the garden, Thy will be done. Not my will, but thine be done. And every one of us who are believers here this morning are here because of the prayer that Jesus prayed, because he submitted to the will of the Father. The fact that the enemy is defeated is an answer to Jesus' prayer, praise God. (laughs) Hallelujah. And the fact that we are set free, the fact that we are set free, and the fact that we are filled with the Spirit of God, the fact that we can now walk in divine power, the fact that we can walk as more than con- the fact that I'm right up here preaching to you instead of some drug addict on the street, that is an answer to Jesus' prayer. The fact that we're going to heaven instead of going to hell, that is an answer to Jesus' prayer, and that's why he's our high priest. <laughs> Hallelujah. He prays the prayer. In fact, the Bible says he's still praying and He intercedes for us. He's our go-between. He prayed the prayer, Father, not thy will, but not my will, but thine be done. He did it out of love. He didn't have to, but he did. And the Father answered that prayer. Okay, Jesus, I will answer that prayer. My will will be done. Prayer unleashes the will of God in this world. It should make us fall in love with the beautiful, wonderful high priest that we have. Does another thing for us, though. We really got to get in on here this morning, folks. And that is it sets an example for how we are to pray. The Bible says that we are priests. We're not the high priest's. But we are priests. We are a royal priesthood, the Bible says. That means this. We are, to the world, a little model of what Jesus is. We mediate the presence of God to other people. We mediate the good news to other people. God relies on us to bring his power, to bring his good news, to bring his peace, to bring his joy, to to bring his forgiveness to the people around us. We are little priests. And that means that we are called to pray the kind of prayer that Jesus prayed. That's why Jesus tells us. One time he tells us really the very words to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. doesn't mean that we always have to pray verbatim this, but here's a good example of how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. That is a royal priest prayer. Father, thy will be done. Whatever the cost, thy will be done. Whatever the price, thy will be done. The one thing that is all important is that thy will be done. We need to understand this. Prayer. Prayer is the main weapon that the priest has for activating the will of God here on earth. Prayer is, 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 is uh, it's like a trust fund. I've used this analogy before. It comes out of, of, of uh, Paul Billheimer. Bill Bollheimer's book, Destined for the Throne. There are some banks that have uh, uh, this way of doing a trust fund. You set up a trust fund, and then to unleash or to release checks uh, uh, written against that trust fund, you need two signatures. You need a signature of the owner of the bank, and you need a signature whose name the trust fund is in. And only if the check is co-signed will that trust fund be released. Prayer is, as it were, the priest's way, the believer's way, of co-signing God's check. God wants to carry out his will in this world. We know that. God wants to set up his kingdom in this world. We know that. He wants to rule this world, but he wants to do it through us. He wants to do it through a bride. Not a bride who's a doormat, not a bride who's a yes person, but a bride who's got authority. Not her own authority, but knows how to use the authority of God Almighty. That's why the Bible says in Revelations chapter 5, verse 10, that we, that we shall reign with Christ upon the world. He, God always operates through mediaries, and we are the mediaries of God's lordship in this world. Prayer is the means by which he gives us authority to carry out, to activate, and to release his will here on this world. God has his lordship will, things he wants to have done. But he has decreed this. My will will be released like a dam being opened up. My will and my power and my blessing will be released. When my bride, when my body, when my army says yes to it. And they say yes to it in prayer. They say yes to it in prayer. When we co-sign In prayer, the check written against against the trust fund of God's providence, as it were, then God's providence is carried out in the world and the keynote is done. It's carried out. We need to understand and understand so clearly that this is an awesome and a wonderful thing that God has given to us. This power to pray a Gethsemane prayer. Two things here. Number one, there's a tremendous urgency that attaches to prayer, tremendous urgency. As the Bible portrays it, I'm not going to go into all this here this morning, but as the Bible portrays it, the fate of individuals, the fate of families, the fate of nations can hang in the balance over whether or not the people of God will pray. The Lord looks for someone to stand in the gap in Ezekiel 22 to to help Israel avoid disaster and he couldn't find any, so Israel goes under disaster. Things hang in the balance as to whether or not the people of God pray. The Bible says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then will they hear from heaven. Then will they hear from heaven. Hallelujah. There's more, there's more ifs and thens connected with prayer than any other thing that God gives us. If you pray, then this will happen. If you pray, then there'll be blessing. If you pray, then there'll be healing. If you pray, then the blind will receive sight. If you pray, the kingdom will come. That's how we co-sign the, 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 the trust fund, the prayer. This isn't a game that God plays. He really, in a covenant, binds himself to this. Because I want my people to have say-so, I want them to be empowered, because I want them to realize what it is to reign with me, I give them this power of prayer. There's an urgency that attaches to it, but there's also a tremendous promise that attaches to it. This is the second thing. Tremendous promise. Jesus said, if you abide in me and I abide in you, then you can ask whatever you will, and it will be done unto you. You see, prayer is not a gimme, give gimme, give gimme, give grab bag kind of a thing. Prayer is not the means by which God wants to spoil us. Prayer is the means by which God wants to bless us. I don't doubt that for a second. But prayer is the means by which God wants his will to be activated here on this earth. And so Jesus said, if you abide in me and I in you, then you can ask whatever you want and it will be. Because if you're abiding in him, and he's abiding in you, there's this communion. You begin to discern what God's will is. So your prayers land. You see, that's why 1 John says, if you ask anything according to the Father's will, it will be done unto you. It's not a gimme, gimme, grab bag, I want a better house, I want a better car kind of a thing, though that may be part of God's will. And there's nothing wrong with stating what your desires are. Jesus did it in the garden. He said, Lord, here's where I'm at. Here's where my heart is at. Nevertheless, Not my will, but thine be done. And the kingdom prayer that the the priests of God are to be praying is this. Father, we need your will to be done. We want to say yes to your will. We want to co-sign what your will is. We want to see the blind receive sight. We want to see people saved. And that's for the blind and that's for the unsaved. But it's also to see the kingdom of God come about. And so our prayer has got to be this. Father, let your will be done. Let your will be done in this area, in that area, in the other other area. And the prayer is this, Lord, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, this is the Gethsemane prayer, then let it be done. Let it be done. Not my will, but thine be done. And if it means me being inconvenienced, if it means me being spent, if it means part of my life, or maybe my very life itself being crucified, that your will be done, then we who claim Jesus Christ of Lord have have got to be willing to pray this prayer. Lord, then do it. Lord, then do it. Carry out your will. And I am available, Like our I am available to be used by you to answer the prayer that I'm praying. You've got to be careful praying this kind of a prayer because this is the prayer that God answers. In fact, as I read Scripture, this is the kind of prayer that God has to answer. He's promised it. He would deny his, himself, deny his integrity if he didn't answer this kind of a prayer. But be careful because he does answer this kind of prayer. Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and use me to do it. And if it means blessing me, fine, but if it means me sacrificing, me being inconvenienced, me crucifying my job, me crucifying my finances, me crucifying the plan for a better home that I have, or whatever, then Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. (laughs) Lord, Lord, just do your work here. The Lord's starting to to move here. Look at some of you know about uh, this uh, thing that's going on in Pensacola, Florida. I don't know if you heard about this revival. There's a huge revival going on in Pensacola, Florida. I've talked to about 10, 11 people now. Nine before this morning and two more people came up. So 11 people I've talked to who have been down there in the last two weeks. Now you get, you get a lot of crazy stuff going on. You get that with any revival. You really do. Because who goes to revival? Well, people with real needs but also carnival chasers. There's a million and eighteen carnival chasers out there, Christian carnival chasers, and they just like a new thing, and they like to get crazy with stuff. So wherever you have a revival, you're going to have wacko stuff, and that's the stuff that people end up reporting on. But you know what? At the core of this thing, there is a move of God that is amazing. They are seeing this. Here, one girl, as she was reporting to me what happened there, she began to shake and cry. She just couldn't stop herself because she was recounting the power of God that she felt in this meeting. There They are seeing groups of prostitutes getting saved at one time with their pimp. Their pimp, in fact, is witnessing to them, bringing them to the church, and they're getting saved. They're seeing people coming out of the occult, people coming out of Satanism, people coming out of drugs and stuff and throwing them up at the altar. They're seeing seeing healings left and right. They're seeing a move of God that's just rejuvenating people. And they are seeing hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people, in fact, getting saved. It's a revival, an incredible revival that's going on. It's bearing a lot of kingdom fruit. Now, why is this happening? Is it because they got a great preacher? No. This congregation of 1,500 has the same preacher they've always had. He's a good preacher. But that's not why it's happening. Because they got a great worship leader? No, they got a good worship leader. But the same worship leader they, this congregation of 1,500 had before then. Here's the story behind it. Pastor Paul Cho, the guy who's got this 100,000-member church in Korea, he gave a prophecy that a revival was going to break out uh, of magnificent proportions in Pensacola. In fact, he specified it even more particular. He says in Brownsville, Florida, there's going to be a revival there. And that revival is going to impact the entire United States. In fact, it's going to spread. These people understood things rightly. They didn't take this prophecy, and this is true of the biblical prophecies too, they didn't take this prophecy to be a kind of like, oh, let's wait and see sort of thing. They began to pray for it. Because it's never a foregone conclusion. They took this as being a call to prayer. And they began to pray every day, getting groups of people to pray every day for revival. Lord, send a revival. We want to be used of you. And Lord, if it means us being an inconvenience, if it means us us really getting radical for you, if it means us going out of our way, if it means troubling us, if it means spending us, then Lord, do it. Because what's really important is that your will get done. And for two years, these people prayed and prayed and labored in prayer for the revival to take place. Two years ago, on, on, on Father's Day, a revival broke out. In the middle of the service, a revival broke out. I mean, there's just was a baptism of divine energy and divine healing, and it just began to happen. It wasn't manipulated or anything, no one planned for it. It just happened. And they began to see their congregation go from 1,500 to 2,500 to 3,500 to 4,500 to 5,500. as going on and on and on. Now, every person I've talked to, except for one, wasn't able to get into the auditorium of this church because uh, it was too crowded. For a midweek service that starts at seven o'clock in the mor- seven o'clock at night, they got people lining up at one o'clock in the morning. Now you think about that? Camping for over twelve hours to get into the church service. These people all came, hallelujah. <laughs> These people all came about nine o'clock, ten o'clock in the morning, and they had to get into overflow rooms. But praise God, the Spirit of God's falling in the overflow rooms too. <laughs> They had to pray harder for that one, but it begins to happen. It's proves that that overflow rooms, hey, overflow room people, you can get annoyed and go ahead and get blessed. Maybe get more blessed. Go ahead. Get, get, get baptized in the Spirit. Let it happen. But stuff's happening all over the place. Stuff's happening in the bathrooms. goodness sakes, in there. I mean, people are getting blessed everywhere they go. It happens because the people of God begin to co-sign the check. God says, I want a revival to take place. Here's a group of people to say, okay, Lord, we're going to go with it. We write on the dotted line with our prayer, with our intercession, saying, not my will, but thine be done, whatever it takes, whatever the cost, whatever the price. Let it happen, Lord God, and revival begins to break out. Why? Because God's promised that it would. If my people who are called by my name will pray, then will they hear from heaven? Some things you don't have to wonder about whether it's the will of God or not, and here's what is the will of God, folks. What's been happening at Woodland Hills? This is just a little microcosm of something else that God's doing across the nation and also here in the Twin Cities. And it's not by accident. It's never by accident. Charles Finney saw this. These things don't happen accidentally. They happen because there are intercessors, people who are willing to pray, Lord, whatever it takes, do it. They're praying Gethsemane prayers. And all over the place, in this body, and in other bodies, people are beginning to pray this prayer. And there are people that are rising up who are really beginning to see that it's okay to let the gospel pinch you. It's okay to let the gospel alter your lifestyle. It's okay to get a little bit radical for Jesus because that alone is what bears kingdom fruit. And people are beginning to rise to the surface and God's beginning to trouble the waters. What I know for sure, for sure, is this. God does not want an apathetic, dormant church in the Twin Cities. Amen? Now That doesn't excite God. What God wants, this is what his plan has always been, is to see the book of Acts happen in the Twin Cities. Hallelujah! (laughs) But it's not going to happen because I'm up here talking about it or because Norm's singing about it or because Steve's out talking about it or whatever. It's going to happen because the people of God say yes to it. And they're willing to go to whatever extent it takes. And they're willing to pray for it over and over again. I don't know about you, you know, but, but it's just, I want so badly. I just praise God for what he's been doing here, and I want more. To see, God, God, just 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 use me. Use me, Lord, whatever it takes. And Lord, even, even to this point, to say, Lord, Lord, my desire is to see Woodland Hills explode as kind of a heartthrob that's going to feed the church in the Twin Cities. Use us, Lord God. Pour out your spirit here. Bless the people form house churches and so on. But Lord, if it would further your kingdom to fold this place, then fold it. Then fold it, Lord. Do we dare pray that prayer? If if that's God's will, because what's important here is not what I want or what you want, what's important is what God wants. All we need to do is make ourselves empty vessels, open faucets through which the water of God's power is going to flow. Through which the water of God's power is going to flow. I challenge you, I challenge you to pray Gethsemane Prayers. To have the faith to believe God's will to be done in your family, in your body, and in your office, and wherever. And always be praying, Lord, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And let God move you in answer to that prayer. Do you have the courage to pray that prayer, and to be open to God using you to answer that prayer? That and that alone is how the work of God, the book of Acts, work of God, is going to go forth here in the Twin Cities. Why else is there to live, you guys? What else is there? Hallelujah. Seventy years from now, there's not one thing that we're involved in that's going to make a bit of difference save this. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, this is what it's all about. Father, I just pray that your will would be done, that your kingdom would happen here, Lord God. We release your will here. We release your power here. We release your spirit here, Lord God. You've chosen by the foolishness of preaching and the foolishness of us silly, fallible people to build your church, to build your kingdom. That's your wisdom, Lord. Uh, It makes us laugh at the devil. If he can't even have authority over us, he must really be a wimp, and that's because of what you've done to him. We give you the praise for it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We give you the praise for it. But Lord God, if you're pleased to do so, use us, Lord God. I pray as we go out of this place, we go with a kingdom mentality. And we start with our own life and say, Lord, your will be done in my life. And we move it to our families and we say, Lord, your will be done in our families. And in our places of employment. And in the way that we spend our money. And in the way that we spend our time. And the people that we spend our time with. Lord God, just let prayer fall like fire from heaven. And soak like rain, Lord God. And bear kingdom fruit. According to the fruit of your spirit. The power of God. Hallelujah. Have your way here, Lord. Raise up a kingdom people, and let it happen here in the Twin Cities, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for praying your prayer and going to the extreme that you went, that we could be here this morning and know who you are. And Lord God, give us the courage to follow you, to follow that example, and do so for others. In your holy name we pray. Amen.